Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 138 with Rupa Unikrishnan. Rupa had so much wisdom to share from such a robust set of real-life experiences. You're going to walk away learning, one, principles for catapulting your career, two, productive stalking to follow innovations and trends, and three, how to manufacture your own serendipity. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, and links to pieces that we reference here, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep138 to view those. While you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I'd encourage you to check out some of our cool stuff from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which can help slash about 84 minutes of waste out of your work week. That's a real number based on before and after surveys from training. Fun fact. Or the Gold Nugget email list, which provides summary insights from each of the guests in a bite-sized email. You can read in under two minutes in the morning, as well as access to the archived vault of the 137 guests that came before Rupa, so you could get all that wisdom in there as well. Here is Rupa's story. Rupa Unikrishnan has almost two decades of experience in roles where she has seeded and driven change and innovation in multiple Fortune 500 companies. Rupa works with consumer goods, education, and technology clients, helping them establish and improve key processes around strategic planning, innovation, space identification, and idea development. A master coach, she works with senior executives to drive personal and career change. Rupa was previously at Pfizer as VP of Corporate Strategy and Global Head of Pfizer's Worldwide Talented Organizational Team for Sales, at BlackRock at HR Lead for Sales and City Cards as Strategy Director. A Rhodes Scholar with a Master's of Philosophy and an MBA from Oxford, she's also a published poet and world-class athlete in the field of sports riflery. She's currently president of Ties New York Chapter, a group focused on fostering entrepreneurship, and was previously board chair of Saki, which works to end domestic violence. Here's Rupa. Rupa, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, you have such a fun, interesting, varied background. Could you take us to the world of women's prone sports rifle, where you are a Hall of Famer and a rock star in the field. What's the story behind that? And can you tell us about some of your adventures and how those lessons may have carried over? Oh, yes, of course. So it's a rarefied world, not because it's sort of difficult to get to. It's because there aren't that many of us out there, certainly not in where I was growing up, which was in India. It's certainly not the obvious choice when you, you know, have a baby daughter. You don't think, okay, here's a rifle shooter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's give her a gun. No, not the first thing that people think of. What happened was my dad used to be in the police and he tried all kinds of sports, right? And I just wouldn't take to it. So I wasn't up for running around the tennis courts, you know, not doing the soccer thing. And then one day he took me out shooting because he, as a policeman, had shooting competitions to go to. And there I was, you know, at that point, I want to say 12, was given this gun and they said, oh, let's see what she can do. And given three instructions, where to point, how to look at the sights, what the target was. 
And I shot five shots and they went right through the center. <laughs> and that was the beginning. So yeah, that's how I started. And when the people around me saw that, they sort of turned around to my dad and said, okay, you know, this is what she was almost born to do. So you asked, how does it sort of translate into the rest of life? I mean, I have to tell you before that, I was certainly not the topper in school. Sort of, I'm happy to announce to the world that I've even had an exam where I scored 12 out of 100 in language or something. No kidding. Because I just couldn't be bothered to study. And then, so after that shooting competition, that was just for fun. But I insisted that he take me into the state championships. And I had clearly been switched on because that first competition that I signed on, I was surrounded by all of these grown-ups and boys mostly. And I went ahead and I won, I want to say like one gold and two silvers. And there wasn't any stopping me. And literally that term, that semester, the exams that I uh, wrote, I landed up getting to be the second in the whole class. I went from being sort of 30th in a class of 35 to being second. <laughs> so it was like, I just realized, oh, this is what it feels like to be great at something. Oh, wow. And I decided to do that all around. So yeah, it's a very special thing in my life. And all that hard work, there were times when it was literally backbreaking. And I am so happy I did it. Well, that is so powerful. This is what it feels like to be great at something. And I Wow. I guess my heart goes out to folks who have never experienced that sensation. And it's like, well, once you get a taste, it's like you're off to the races, road scholar and the whole nine yards. That's right. And it does, you know, the thing I remind my, I have kids now and I have friends and I coach people. I used to coach people. I don't do as much now because of the book and other things, but I look forward to continuing. But one thing I tell them is it doesn't have to be, you know, an Olympic sport. It can be anything in your life. If you can just sort of find a couple of things where you just feel in flow and just recognize what that felt like, right? Even if you're jogging in the morning and when you feel that adrenaline and that sort of well-being and you sort of ping on to that and hold on to that and say, this is what I want to feel most of the time. So let me try and engage at that level, sort of a higher level. It's fabulous. It's a great feeling. And it doesn't have to be, you know, Olympic level sports. <laughs> Understood. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And so now you do a good bit of corporate innovation consulting, but mm -hmm. you apply some of these same principles to individuals and their careers. How does that kind of carry over? Yeah, I stumbled upon it really because I did corporate innovation and strategy work inside of companies that I worked for. And then when I was in consulting and now in my current role as well. And one of the principles there is to think divergently, right? Mm -hmm. To examine your assumptions about what is reality, your current reality and question them. You also have to sort of think in sort of extremes, right? What would something that didn't look like this look like? And by the way, what would that extreme look like, right? So if you assume you have to sell A, then, you know, take a different approach and say, what if we gave it away, <laughs> right? That is the extreme of from selling, for example. So you do that on a daily basis. And then I would go in and have conversations initially just with friends and colleagues, and they would keep talking about being stuck, feeling, you know, in, down in the dumps because they didn't know what was going to come because, you know, with the company or the industry was facing a downturn. And I started telling them, but look at yourself, you're great at X, right? 
yes, you're an accountant in a bank, but you're also somebody who very quickly understands how to make the numbers work, how to make change happen. So I would sort of have these counseling conversations and you know, I found that I was using the same approaches. Like, let's first lay out what assumptions you're working under, right? You're not just an accountant in finance. You know, let's break out of that thinking, that mold. And then now let's start thinking very extreme. Well, if you can make the numbers work, what if you worked in a space where they needed the numbers to work? So, but in a place that you are passionate about. So let's talk about you doing, you know, regulatory work for a company that's in energy and solar energy. Like, would that make you happy? Oh yeah, that's different. That's totally different, but I could do it, right? So I would have these conversations. So I started finding that pretty much every technique or brainstorm technique or, you know, ideation technique really worked fabulously when it came to your career as well. Well, that's great. And so you begin sharing some of those in your book here, The Career Mm -hmm. Catapult. So could you give us sort of the main idea behind the book and then Talk to us about some of the techniques and disciplines that we should apply in particular. So the core sort of center of this book is all about constructively disrupting yourself, right? Jolting yourself before a jolt happens to you. Okay. So in other words, yeah, let's just face it. There are very few of us in the world today who are going to be lucky enough to have an easy career, right? There's change happening, technological change, economic changes. You think you're doing fine and your job moves. It changes from being a, you know, mostly manual kind of job to something that's been automated, whatever it is, right? Things are shifting on you. So the first course as core construct is you should be ready. And not only that, you should jolt yourself before it happens to you. And the second element is use the techniques and the practices of corporations, the way they think about innovation, use it on yourself and do it in a way that it just becomes a habit. So it's not something you have to work too hard at. So you sort of keep practicing some of these ideas and techniques that I bring up and they just become part of who you are and how you think. So it's not an effort. So that's really the center of the book. Okay. And so then could you maybe give us a story of that kind of coming to life there in terms of someone who had an insight, a realization, hey, it'd probably be wise for me to jolt my own career proactively and you know how they did it and what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I met this person from a startup, Rado Kotorov. He's now a serial entrepreneur, but he grew up in Hungary when the iron wall was still up, right? And the assumption was you study, You have a few, what do you call, (laughs) state-approved careers out there, and then you're set for life, and you may not be the happiest person around, but you manage, right? And so he was all set to go down the pathway of being a lawyer, and then the walls come down, and here he was sort of, in a way, he got jolted, right? Mm -hmm. But rather than sort of stepping back and saying, well, I have, I could still be a lawyer, he looked around and he said, well, I wanted to learn law and you know, understand the legal mindset, that sort of problem-solving, questioning mindset. Now that I have that, let me go out and figure out what I want to do, what's happening in this world around me. So here he was, sort of 19 or so, looks around and realizes what he wanted to do and what he wanted to access now that the walls were down was to read and have access to literature and sort of things that were not state accepted, state, Mm -hmm. you know, regurgitated. 
So he goes off and realizes no books around that he can easily access and turns around and says, what if I were to set up my own printing press? And learns the trade really quickly, does it mostly online, small shipments, small prints that he starts selling out of the back of his car. And because it just so happens that the person he's working with was able to hand one of those books to a person who landed up being one of the presidential candidates, it shows up on the candidate's side table during a TV interview. And everyone wants to know where this press is that is generating these great old masters and literature pieces. And next thing you know, he's got a storefront and he's shipping all over the world. He then decided, okay, so now that I've done this and the world is moving fast enough, let me start doing other things. So he teaches himself to code. He starts creating other startups. They created coffee machines, et cetera. So this was a person who decided life's going to shift and I'm going to learn to continuously scan my surroundings, decide what I want to do make the change that I want to make. So that he started by making coffee machines because he realized he didn't find good coffee all around him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, he worked from instinct almost, but he was constantly looking, constantly creative, and he was building around him a community that wanted to invest and build his ideas out for him. So that's sort of an extreme. That's a startup kind of story. So this person that I was talking about who was an accountant at a Wall Street bank here in New York City, Lovely person, you know, I'd meet her during a party, she'd be full of smiles on a Saturday, and then Monday evening, she'd look like she wanted to kill someone. So I said, come on, you know, what's the story here? And she basically said she was miserable, like every element of work was miserable. It wasn't rewarding. Her whole life was about generating reports that then got torn apart. And I said, wow, okay. You're in this exciting city and all you land up doing is getting one day out of the seven days when you feel like yourself. You might want to change that out a little. So she actually reached out to me. So I wasn't sort of pushing her to change. And she said, what do I start doing? And so we developed a series of practices that she would work on. One was to really start digging deep. And I'm going now into some of my sort of the principles I talk about, but really digging deep into her what motivated her, right? What made her passionate? But what were her core competency, what she was great at? And finally, what was she just not seeing that she wasn't great at? So the black holes is what I call it, right? Mm -hmm. Blind spots. And when we start really examining them, you know, it takes some effort to recognize that there are blind spots, right? They're blind spots for a reason. But but I had her go off and talk to people who she was constantly sort of taking things rather personally. But when she started talking to people who had started almost avoiding her, they sort of raised the issues of, you know, how her sort of focus on certain elements of work was just not working for them, you know, and she was such a perfectionist that in Wall Street, things moved really fast, right? Just wasn't working for them. So the more she saw this and the more she realized, well, it's her blind spot, but it's not something she can see herself letting go of totally. So given that, there's a limitation to what she was going to be able to do and succeed at here. So I said, okay, now let's step back and say, is this really what you want to do? Like Wall Street at the end, right? It's about generating money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So does that make you- Greed is good. Greed is good, right? (laughs) Greed is good. Is that what you want to do? And she said, "Ah, you know, that's at the end, the part of the problem is I really don't feel it. And I said, okay, so let's talk about what you feel. And the more I talked to her, it was things like, 
sustainable energy and the green revolution. I mean, it was environmentalism, right? Biggie environmentalism. So I said, okay, fine. So let's now start, you know, creating, coordinating, understanding the trends. What is the part of environmentalism that feels like it's going to be hard also while being environmentally appropriate and good for the world is also going to be kind of hard headed because she is that kind of person. It's pretty wired up and really kind of focused on getting the numbers right, et cetera. And so the more we looked at it, the more it was clear that the whole solar energy sort of space, it is all about sort of knowing exactly which grid you're going to send out your sort of collected solar energy into, how you're going to account for it, how's the government going to pay you, et cetera. It's pretty intricate. And right. she said, wow, I didn't know this. And the way she found out all about this, which, you know, we basically signed her up for a series of conferences and had a go off and find out, like just hang out with these people whose day job this is. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And so what she was doing was both, you know, what I call stalking the trends and using her network, which I call sort of unfreezing your, the assets, right? You know, really using your, adulting your assets so that they're working for you, in this case, her network. And finally, she was prototyping because by going into these conferences and starting to think through, can I live in this? Can I practice being in it? That's what she was doing. She was sort of starting to live in this new reality. So um, once she kind of got to the point where she knew what this whole space was about and knew she was going to be excited, applied in a couple of places. And lo and behold, in about three months time or four months time, maybe, she was in California with a new job and happy as a clam, right? So it takes effort. It takes some thought. You can't plan everything out, but you kind of have to live with it for a while and play with these ideas to make it work for you. Oh, that's fun. Thank you. So you did bring a number of the disciplines you lay out in your book to life right there, all in one fell swoop, one example. And so could you give us maybe a couple action steps and a definition for kind of each of your disciplines. So the first one is dig deep to soar. Mm -hmm. What's that all about and what should we do with it? So this idea of digging deep, as I said, it's about the three spaces, understanding what you're really great at or good at, okay, or capable of being good at. The second is understanding where your passions are. And the third is knowing, learning, and recognizing your blind spots, all right? The first one is all about what you can keep growing and improving. The second is about sort of how can you nurture those passions because that's like having an inherent battery that keeps you going. And the third piece is about like at least acknowledging it. If you're able to address those blind spots, great. But if you're able to understand them, you're already doing better than 80% of the people out there, right? <laughs> because right. They, you know how the research says that if you survey a population and say, are you a above average driver, people uh -huh. drive, or are you below average? 80% of the people say we're above average, which is not possible mathematically, right? Certainly. <laughs> not, because everyone thinks, or it's actually more like 90, but everyone thinks they're better at something than they're not. So if you can recognize, okay, I'm impatient or I tend to be long-winded, you know what? Already you've learned two things about you that you can start watching for. And, you know, once you start watching for it, you can start addressing it. So what I do in the first chapter is I create a simple way where people can literally create their self-awareness map. That's an exercise I sort of provide. And it's in my book and it's on my website too. If you go on and you can put in my catapult as the little code, you can print out a little like worksheet that allows you to create your own self-awareness map. 
Oh, did you give us an exclusive code? <laughs> oh, I like yes. that. There we go. My catapult. Benefits. There you go. Lowercase, no space, my catapult. That's right. Okay. All right. So just go in there and, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, you can certainly sit there, you click in, put in a request and you'll get the code anyway. I'm trying to make it easy for people to use my book and what I have in there. <laughs> so that's sort of the beginning, right? Once you create this self-awareness map, you then walk away and you look at it, right? First, you just capture the information. And then I want you to sort of sleep on it, think on it for a little bit and start looking at it and say, what are the possibilities? If I'm really good at A, if I'm passionate about B and there's C that I'm not really good at, what is that soup that comes out of that cook? You know, the three of them getting mixed in. So I'm really good at seeing the future. I love aerospace mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hate, you know, staying in one place. Guess what? I should actually be a futurist working for an aerospace company and traveling all the time. I'm just making this stuff up. But, you know, you really should sort of start laying out these elements and almost creating a little bit of a game of mix and match to say, what does this mean? What would this look like? So that's the first part is really delving deep and testing. So not just here are the jobs I see on monster.com. And now let me apply because I think I could do it, (laughs) right? That's not going to be as sustainable or fulfilling as creating some possibilities yourself and then trying to find them because there are lots of jobs out there that don't get posted on Monster, right? Absolutely. You, it's about sort of picking up the phone and saying, you know what, I don't see any postings, but can you tell me about your company and what's out there? There's a good chance something can come up from those conversations. Perfect. And I was going to go there next with the following discipline is stalking the innovation and trends. You had a friend who went to a lot of conferences and learned all about solar energy. What are some other key tactics for world-class stalking? World-class stalking. I sort of talk about how you need to kind of keep this 360 view. And I use this. So this talking comes from this idea when I first started thinking about how the people I knew, it felt like they always knew what was going on. It was like they were like, Panthers, right? They were always sort of in the undergrowth, constantly looking left and right, and they didn't stay still. And then they pounced when the time was right. So that was the picture in my head. And that's why I call it stalking, right? And one of the things you'll find is it doesn't come easy or simply, but one of the first principles is read deep, broad, and around the edges, right? What does that mean? So if you choose a book, like actually spend time with that book. So I remember reading Anonymous a couple of years ago. It's a book about the hackers out there. Oh, yeah. I've seen a documentary. It's a fascinating story. It is fascinating. And it was like a world being opened to me. And I can tell you, I spent, like, it sucked me in in a way that I, and by the way, it sort of changed the way I interact with technology forever, right? (laughs) (laughs) But the interesting thing was, it was a space I would never have really sort of It's not the most obvious thing for me to start getting into, but it opened up a whole new space around security and cybersecurity. And it's a big part of the work I do now. You know, I do strategy work and it sort of opened up because of that almost serendipitous sort of accidental time when I started with this book and then decided just go deep into that. So that's one way, right? The other is broad, right? So when you're sitting there and you see something and you think, I can't believe people think that way that's when you should read it. Okay. Like challenge yourself consistently and constantly, right? If there's a website that everyone who you know loves to hate, read it. 
spend some time. <laughs> I'm constantly sort of getting into trouble or like chiding my husband because when we drive, he listen to these radio shows and it just drives me up the wall. And he says, but you need to know how the other half thinks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's a great way to think. But beyond that, not just on things that you don't agree, but things that you just don't feel comfortable about, right? If you're an artist, pick up a book about the physics of light. So it's not too different from where your mind is at, but it puts it in a different space, right? You want to know how light works, but this is truly the physics of it. Maybe you learn something new about how you can work your art, for example. So that's the broad element. And then there's the around the edges, right? So these days, you have books, you have magazines, you have blogs and online resources, but what are the pamphleteers of today, right? It's the Twitter, it's the little feeds, it's stuff on BuzzFeed, like actually take those things as seriously and see what else is going out there because those are the weak signals about what could be instrumental in the future that you just don't know about now, right? So I can tell you when I first heard about the Kardashians, I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But the impact they have on just public discourse, right? On even sort of social movements. It's kind of interesting. And I feel like in 10 years, we might have a different opinion about them. But Push yourself around that. So that's one of those principles. And there's a lot more in the book that you can follow, but things like participating in the action, right? So hanging, what I call hanging out with purpose. So reach out to the people you see as trendsetters or people who understand trends and literally spend time with them. Be daring and experimental. Like just as sort of when you're in academic, you sort of take yourself and make yourself go to, you know, seminars that maybe you're not used to pick yourself up and sort of say, hey, you know, I just saw that this set of people are off at at this conference. I don't usually do it, but I have two days. Maybe I'll go there. So sort of hanging out with purpose is one way to do it. And then, of course, the old-fashioned idea of scribing, just write things down. You never know what will happen one day when you pick up an old diary of yours or a journal and you see an idea. Things might spark. So just writing it down is a good way to make things real. So you'll see more of this kind of advice in my book. (laughs) Buy the book and you'll see them right there. Oh, sure. And that's fun. And I want to follow up on perhaps the most important thing you said there, Mm -hmm. which is, what is your current opinion of the Kardashians? (laughs) I don't know if we articulated that explicitly. Well, you know, so, I mean, I can tell you this, the photographs still irritate me, but what I actually love about it is that they have shifted the way we think about body image, right? So I have young children and the fact that there are these women who are off like in various shapes and sizes doing their thing is kind of fun. It's good for me to sort of not have to worry about having children who have feel like they have to go off and be anorexic to succeed. So anyway, so that is my first thought since you asked me. But the second thought that I have is how do you generate buzz, right? So the fact that they were able to create this empire with well, I would say with very little, if you mm-hmm. want to content. Now, if you had great content, how much more could you do? And maybe having too much content is part of the issue, right? Maybe we live in the world where having just enough content is the way to go. So those are some of the things that strike me. And so when I write my strategy decks now, I don't try to put 35,000 ideas in there. It's like, here are three things we want to do, guys. And it's much more successful. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. 
Well, and so can we talk a bit about the networking discipline? Mm-hmm. We talked about some hanging out in places yeah. and learning from folks. Any sort of tricks that you advocate again and again? Yes. So I remember when I was in college and university, I remember <laughs> meeting this guy who inadvertently left a spreadsheet lying out. You know, we all in graduate school, we lived in the same dorm and he'd printed out this spreadsheet and he had literally on the spreadsheet, the name of everyone he'd met that day at the party and a little note on like each person. And we all, and of course, you know, I can say we're all a little cruel. We all looked at it. We laughed. We thought he was just a joke. You know, it said Rupa, you know, (laughs) exceptionally charming and beautiful is the note he had. (laughs) Maybe part of the issue was there wasn't much written there. I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't fully remember the details because, of course, it was a graduate school party. There was may have been some alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) But the fun and interesting thing is after having been mercilessly, you know, cruel in that not to his face, but just we made a lot of fun behind his back. But now I think about it, I'm kind of advocating something similar, but simpler, right? Like don't create a big spreadsheet of everyone you know with little like creepy notes about them. No, not what I'm telling you to do. What I am though telling you to do is really sort of step back and look at your network and say, there are people you hang out with because they're fun. Okay. So that's your fun network. It is what it is. But as you're engaging, also think about the people who you have around you, who are your advocates, right? The people who will actually go to bat for you. If you want to try an experiment with a new career, who can you always sort of lean on to sort of open a door for you? You need to know that. The second is really watch the people who are really curious about what's emerging and just make a little note on it. So if you know that James is always going to be the one that if you're sort of saying, hey, what is this whole thing with, you know, Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. You need somebody you can talk to. You need a couple of people like that that you need to sort of talk to because guess what? It's going to be relevant (laughs) and you don't have to be in retail or financial services or anything for it to be relevant. It's just a relevant thing for you to know no matter where you are in the economy, right? If you're in the sort of traditional economy. So make sure you know who's out there that you can have. Either they know or they're willing to actually ask the question with you. Mm -hmm. And maintain this. And also mine your current network for people who have sort of strength in important spaces. So either they're influential or they have, as I said, content or they're advocates. So that sort of know where your strengths are. And then once you've really figured that out, step back and say, so... I got a lot of people who are really strong content people, and I have a lot of people who are pretty influential, but not many of them are folks that I can count on to open the doors for me. So then you start getting into that sort of problem-solving mindset to say, why? Is there something about me that I haven't built that trust? What's that going to take? So that's where the introspection starts, right? You have to really be somebody that people want to support and help in the network as well. So there's work to be done in sort of helping build trust. And some of this is about reciprocally being somebody who can be counted on to show up and help out as well. So really helping sort of you're jolting your network to be of help. So it's a little bit of work to just sort of step back, think about it, make your notes, figure out what your plan is and start engaging. So, you know, my husband and I joke that There was a point when I would know for a fact when a company was going through layoffs because I'd suddenly start getting these 
LinkedIn invites, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there'd be like 30 LinkedIn invites from company A. And I'd be like, oh, I see company A is going to do something. Then, you know, <laughs> you're starting to send out LinkedIn invites and asking people out to lunch when you're in dire straits. It's too late. Yeah. Right? You got to have linked in a meaningful way, way ahead of time, right? You met at a conference, like make the link right then, you know, and if you can remember the person, you know, there's a relevant piece of news in their industry or you've talked about now between you and me, Pete, I will be sending you notes about Kim Kardashian. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you. (laughs) If you can can remember, you know, things that actually are meaningful and interesting and fun, make that a true relationship, right? It can't just be sort of, okay, here's the person and in my spreadsheet I have her, she used to work at Pfizer. So next time I need, I'm thinking of a job at Pfizer, I'm going to ping her. That ain't a great way to engage with your network, Right. (laughs) right? It's intuitive, but people need to know that. And What I found interesting about some of the younger folks I've coached is that they actually think it's mercenary to use their network. Mercenary. Yeah. So, you know, one of the people, very connected family, but she herself actually had a series of friends. And here she was six months without a job, living on a couch. And I just sort of almost pro bono was helping her out. And I asked her, so just tell me who are your friends because you talk about all these great conversations and it sounds like they're all smart people. And she lays out this list of like six people at Google and these three people at startups, et cetera. I'm like, and do you talk to them about work? No, we are friends. I would never talk to them about work. (laughs) Like, okay, let's take a deep breath here. You know, if these are people who are engaging with you and you're an intelligent person, It's about helping them see that them having another intelligent person in their company is a good thing, right? So this is about adding value in their lives. This is not about you getting something out of them. It's not mercenary. It's about adding value. It's flipping that switch there as well. It's important because the world is made of human interactions and you can't look at everything transactionally. Otherwise, you're done for. Absolutely. Well, Rupa, there's just so much good stuff here. Tell me, is there anything else you want to quickly mention before we talk about some of your favorite things? I think the one thing I want people, because I feel passionately about it, is sort of manufacturing your own serendipity, right? Serendipity is this idea of a surprising piece of good luck. I sort of say good luck only happens to people who are prepared, right? (laughs) The fortune favors the brave, fortune favors the prepared. And so make yourself available to luck, sort of put yourself in places that you're open to new opportunities. So in one of my chapters, I lay out sort of practices that you can use to not just have interesting things happen around you, but you engage with them. So if you're walking down the street, the first time I invested was I had hardly any money. This was like late 90s. And I was walking down the street and I started seeing that just before the holidays, all of these FedEx boxes, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a tiny bit of money and I said, clearly people are really starting to do a lot of this thing called internet retail. (laughs) All right. People are buying things on the computer because I wasn't even sort of smart at that point. It wasn't obvious that this was the thing to stay, but I said, okay, so at least for the next couple of years, this is going to happen. So let me put some money in this thing called FedEx. This was my very first stock shares purchase, and I still have it in my portfolio. And it's like, I don't know, 12, 13 times 
what I'd initially put in or maybe more. So, you know, not only seeing something, but then acting on it. Now, if I was super smart, I would have said, wow, this retail thing is happening. Let me go set up a retail store online. Now, uh-huh. that would have been super smart, but I just wasn't smart enough for that. <laughs> but it's okay. I did my whole buying share thing. But similarly, you know, like be open, see what's around you and take advantage of it because, you know, the technologies that are around us allow us to do much more with our insights than, you know, 50 years ago. So that's the one thing I would put out there. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. I mean, so this one, I wish it was more different, but it's sort of very much in the context of how I feel. Some people say this was Gandhi who said it, others say it wasn't, but it's still a great quote. And it is, be the change you want to see in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is very much about making yourself the instrument for change, right? You want people to be collaborative, start by being collaborative yourself. You want to see more green happen, you got to be more green, right? So I love that idea. And I sort of say that about careers. If you want to make your job happier, you kind of got to start with your own, how you engage with the work you're doing, right? So that's my quote. But there's a second thing I will throw in there, which I think is really important in the world we live in. It's a very old Indian concept called Sat Chit Ananda, true and everlasting happiness, right? So don't go with the sort of ephemeral, right? Don't go with something that lasts for a short time. And don't put up with just, okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're given a choice, right? I'm going to go off and have a drink and just hang, or I have the choice between that or going for a really nice long run. I'd say, apart from all the obvious reasons, the run's probably going to leave you with a lot more adrenaline and whatever else that is sort of generated in your brain. It's going to leave you with a longer term benefit in your health. And so these are the choices we make every day. So that's a trivial example. But in sort of the higher example, I think the only time I ever chose a job because of the paycheck, I was miserable, right? Mm -hmm. So every time I've chosen and sort of done something, a career step, which was based on the content of the work and the people I'm working with and the impact that the work would have, you know, even when the going got tough, I was perfectly fine. (laughs) So I remind myself of that because everyone slips and I certainly can and have. So those are some ideas I want to put out there. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? So this is, again, sort of a interesting piece of work, but it's old fashioned, but I still think it's worth talking about. Have you heard of the Hawthorne study? Oh, right. Yes. Yeah which is that everything that you observe changes by the very act of observing it. Yes. So it's a fabulous way to motivate change in your life, right? If you're sort of finding yourself in a rut or finding your team in a rut, just sort of say, hey, we're going to just observe this. We're going to take notes about it. In fact, my whole book is based on the fact that I get people to keep notes, take notes, think about it, you know, just make a mental observation I'm making them do the Hawthorne on themselves because that's the beginning of change. So it's old fashioned, but it's a fun thing to remember. Oh, certainly. And how about a favorite book? I have a book. It's called The Razor's Edge. Wow, I'm just dating myself. That's fine. Let's hear it. (laughs) So The Razor's Edge is this idea of this guy who is sort of basically a profligate, right? Just, you know, drinking his time away. And he loses his rich fiance when he decides to go traveling. 
and it's by Somerset Mom. And that act of traveling sort of opens him up to incredible growth. And so he starts questioning pretty much everything and comes back around to his old milieu, such a changed man that he changes everything around him. So you can hear, and I read this when I was something like, you know, I want to say 14. So this theme of how you can change and you can make change happen for the better has clearly been part of my life for a long time. <laughs> and you're helping me see that. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> oh, happy. Thank you. Happy to help and appreciate your help in here as well. And could you share now a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or framework, something that helps you be awesome at your job? You know, I can tell you that podcasts, now I'm not just catering to you because I say this to everyone around me. But about six months ago, I started this new role where I land up having to drive to Stamford every day. So about an hour long drive up and a drive back. And I've started listening to podcasts. And it's amazing the stuff I'm learning, right? So talk about sort of serendipity and new ideas just sort of popping into my head. So while it's been a way to kill time, it's also a great way for me to learn about the world in a way that is easy to digest as well as actionable. So I'm constantly in rooms where I'm either I know something from pop culture or sort of something that is very technical, security and hacking. And people are like, how do you know that? And I don't actually always say I it's from a podcast. Mm -hmm. I say, well, you know, it's there. <laughs> but podcasts are really doing the world a service, especially at a time when it's harder and harder to find good content out there that's supported by, you know, grants, etc. So I love that it's something that's sustainable and there. Okay. And how about, is there a articulation of your message that seems to especially connect and resonate with folks in terms of they're nodding their heads and saying, yes, Rupa, that's perfect. It's about sort of not settling and jolting yourself with practices that you use for other people, right? For your job. So treat yourself and your job and your career just as preciously as you do your work inside of your career, right? And mm. it's not just sort of providing value to your employer, provide ongoing value to yourself. Okay. And what would you say is the ideal contact information if folks want to get in touch or learn more about what you're up to? I love my Twitter feed and my followers there. So at Rupa Online, R-O-O-P-A-O-N-L-I-N-E is the best way to sort of get in touch with me directly. It's easy to just DM me there or follow me there. And there's my website, which is thecareercatapult.com. Those are two good ways to get a hold of me. All right. And do you have a final call to action or challenge for folks seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Absolutely. Don't settle. Push yourself. You're worth it. Oh, you're worth it. I say that to people <laughs> all the time. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, Rupa, this has been such a treat. Thank you. And keep on doing what you're doing. And I'm looking forward to checking out some of those resources that you mentioned there. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I love what you do and keep at it. Thank you so much, Pete. Something that really connected with me was when you're starting to send out LinkedIn invites and asking people out to lunch when you're in dire straits, it's too late. And I think that's true of so many things, whether it's relationships or other urgent matters. If you wait too long, you find yourself in a bad spot. So hopefully you can get ahead of that in your networking and other priorities before urgency takes over and you're in a not a great spot. So 
One more time, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we reference, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep138. And I do hope you push the subscribe button so you'll be sure to hear folks like our next guest. It's Dr. Jody Foster. She's got some perspective on the schmucks in your office and how to deal with them. So I hope to catch you then. In peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 